Hello and welcome to the turbulent world of Middle East soccer or Middle East soccer podcast. I'm your host, James Dorsey. The coronavirus pandemic points a finger not only at the colossal global collapse of responsible public health policy, but also the importance of balancing exclusionary religious practices and social cohesion. While government negligence allowed an evangelist prayer meeting to drive the spread of the virus in France, lagging social cohesion, coupled with politicians politicking, put ultra-conservative communities in Israel and Pakistan in the diseases driver's seat. The resistance of ultra-conservatives who pay the price with high infection rates takes debate about social cohesion beyond European efforts over the past two decades to restrict ultra-conservative Muslim and to a lesser degree Jewish practices in a bid to prevent the fringes of society turning into breeding grounds for militancy and political violence. Various European governments have sought to impose social cohesion by banning women's face covers, forcing people to shake the hand of someone of a different gender, restricting foreign funding for religious institutions, and calls for outlawing Muslim and Jewish rituals for the slaughter of animals. Post-Kemalist Turkey, under the leadership of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the only democracy to move in the opposite direction, was the exception that confirmed the rule. While European nations banned hijabs and niqabs, Mr. Erdogan lifted the ban in universities and government offices, demolishing a pillar of French lyicist-inspired Kemalism. The issues of social cohesion and political violence took center stage in February in a Dutch parliamentary inquiry that investigated unwanted influence of unfree countries. The parliamentary group grilled a controversial Salafi imam with questions that implied that the cleric was undermining social cohesion and enabling militancy with advice to his community to avoid intermingling with non-Muslim Dutchmen and to look the other way when walking past a church. Critics charged that the inquiry by focusing exclusively on ultra-conservative Muslims and Turkish nationalist moves to control Dutch-Turkish mosques was putting the Muslim community that accounts for 5% of the Dutch population on the defensive. Israeli efforts to combat the coronavirus have highlighted similar social cohesion issues with ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities in Jerusalem and B'nai Brak, a city near Tel Aviv, that are among the Jewish state's foremost virus, virus clusters. Authorities put B'nai Brak this week in lockdown. Initial government reluctance to enforce the closure of schools and synagogues, as well as social distancing among the ultra-Orthodox, who account for 12% of Israel's population of 8.6 million, was seemingly motivated by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's fear 
that he would alienate religious parties that support his effort to form a new post-election government. Mr. Netanyahu has recently been twice in quarantine, once after having been in face-to-face -face contact with his ultra-Orthodox advisor, Rivka Paluch, who tested positive, and a second time after his health minister, Yaakov Litzman, a prominent member of the ultra-Orthodox community, contracted the disease. It took the disease to persuade Mr. Litzman that harsher measures were needed. Mr. Litzman, discussing the virus, insisted last month that we are praying and hoping that Messiah will come by Passover. It's the time of redemption. I am sure that the Messiah will come just like he took us out of Egypt. Mr. Litzman and Mrs. Paluch's initial resistance to tough public health measures suggest ultra-Orthodox assertions that lack of information was not the only reason for the failure to comply with government policy. To be sure, ultra-Orthodox Jews frequently live in a world of their own that centers on prayer and religious learning. Many do not have television, access to the internet, or listen to mainstream radio broadcasts. They rely on community news sheets. Add to that the fact that proposed public health measures disrupt ultra-Orthodox life. Like Muslims, ultra-Orthodox Jews congregate several times a day for prayers. Unlike Muslims, Jews require for certain prayers a quorum of at least 10 adult men. The government's closure of ritual baths, moreover, means that couples are banned from intimacy or sleeping in one bed. Furthermore, ultra-Orthodox interactions with more secular Jewish society are few and far between. Members of the community often speak Yiddish rather than Hebrew, a language that in their view is reserved for prayer in the absence of the arrival of the Messiah. Like recent ultra-Orthodox funerals, recent mass gatherings in Pakistan, Malaysia, and India of Tablighi Jamaat, a transnational ultra-conservative Muslim movement, have turned into hubs from which the coronavirus has spread. Former Israeli Justice and Religious Affairs Minister Yossi Beilin could have been speaking about the Tablighi when he summed up the ultra-Orthodox Jewish view as Keep praying together. Whatever you try doing will not change anything because the disaster is a God-given phenomenon and only begging God may change things for the better. With governments across the globe having failed to prepare for or counter the coronavirus from day one, Israel and Pakistan are in good company. So is France where a week-long evangelist gathering in the French city of Mulhouse kick-started the virus spread in the country. Members of the congregation said they knew nothing about the virus's threat. Indeed, the French government had at that point failed to issue proper warnings and take the kind of measures that potentially could have blunted the virus's 
devastating impact. The upshot of Israel's travails, the Dutch inquiry that resembled at times an inquisition, Pakistani hesitancy to impose public health measures on an influential religious group, and French negligence constitute in essence government failures on two counts. The failure to read the writing on the wall with regard to the virus, and the failure to work with ultra-conservatives to bring them into the fold. Talking about the ultra-Orthodox, Gilad Malach of the Israel Democracy Institute appeared to put the onus on ultra-conservatives. The main question towards the future is whether within the community there will be voices that will say, we want to protect our community but we also belong to the state. If the emergence of ultra-conservative communities as virus clusters says anything, it is that waiting for ultra-conservatives to raise their voice isn't good enough. The coronavirus demonstrates the price of not reaching out to ultra-conservative communities and establishing two-way channels of communication. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. A written version of this podcast is on my blog, The Turbulent World of Middle East Soccer at mideastsoccer.blogspot.com. Please join me for my next podcast in the coming days. Best wishes and take care in these trying times.